Hi, folks. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you get our program through iTunes, please go there and rate us so that other people can find the show. And if you're on our website, radioproject.org, please click on the Donate button so that you can support this work and help us keep making great shows like this one. All right. Thanks. Here's the show. I'm Jasmine Lopez, and this is Making Contact. On July 5th, 2016, 37-year-old Alton Sterling was fatally shot by police in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Then on July 6th, 32-year-old Philando Castile was shot and killed by police in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Castile's girlfriend was able to live stream the following disturbing incident, all while their four-year-old child sat in the back seat. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back. And the police just, he's, he's, he's covered. He they killed my boyfriend. He's licensed, he's carried to, he's licensed to carry. The shooting sparked outrage across the U.S. and tens of thousands of demonstrators took to the streets and shut down highways and bridges and cities to protest the brutal police killings of Castile and Sterling and the racist violence perpetrated by police across the country. Violence that has already taken the lives of 187 black people in the U.S., during the first half of 2016, and at least 346 in 2015. 97% of those cases did not result in officers being charged with a crime. On July 7, a heavily armed sniper gunned down police officers during a peaceful protest in Dallas, killing five and injuring nine other people. People are taking to social media to voice their thoughts and express their emotions about the week, the state of their country. One Facebook post expressed, I'm heartbroken by the mistrust, racism, anger, and killings. Another post stated, Never surprised with black murder from the police. I can't count the times I've almost joined this exclusive club just for being. I'm not asking for your sympathy. I'm asking you to ride with me. It's no surprise because structural racism is a part of the social, economic, and political systems in which we all exist. It's why unarmed black people are killed by police at three times the rate of unarmed whites. Since the founding of this country, people of color have been marginalized, exploited, and brutalized. Today, it's in the way the government incarcerates black men. It's in police brutality and the killing of black people. It's in ICE raids deportations, and detentions. The list of preferential treatment, privilege, and power for white people at the expense of people of color goes on. But these injustices aren't just happening in the U.S. On today's episode, Elvira Truglia brings us the story of how Freddy Villanueva was shot and killed by police in Montreal on August 9, 2008, as told in the documentary play, Freddy. If we look at the recent events in the United States, the um, police shooting deaths, it became clear to me that these incidents, which were clearly not new incidents, were today provoking more reaction from different parts of society. So it wasn't just black people who were going out on the streets in America saying this is wrong. It was people from across the spectrum of ethnic and cultural backgrounds who were saying the fact that our law enforcement and our justice system might be treating people differently because of the color of their skin 
is a threat to civil society and we need to we need to express our concern about this. A spotlight marks center stage. Our eyes are drawn to a pair of black and red sneakers disembodied in the stark theater set. The shoes are a stand-in for Freddy Villanueva, the 18-year-old Honduran refugee shot by police on August 9, 2008, in Montreal North. Constable Jean-Louis Lapointe fired the four shots that killed Freddy Villanueva. The confrontation started when police found Villanueva playing a game of dice, a minor municipal infraction. He was with his brother Danny, cousin Marta, and friends, Jeffrey and Dennis. In one of the opening scenes, the actors standing in for the group of friends showed in unison, They're coming towards us! The friends were in the parking lot of a neighborhood park in the multi-ethnic, working-class area where they lived. The police pulled up to question the youth. Fast fact. Between the time that police officer Jean-Luc Lapointe called out and the moment that he fired four shots, just 60 seconds went by, more or less. That's one minute. One minute. In that one minute, Freddy Villanueva was killed and two others were wounded. Villanueva's death fueled street protests, allegations of racial profiling, and threw the Villanueva family into legal battles with the Montreal police that lasted for years. The fallout from Villanueva's death inspired Freddy, a documentary play by Annabelle Sutar about the shooting and the investigation. It's clear that it was Constable Jean-Luc Lapointe who pulled the trigger, but the documentary play Freddy asks not who, but what killed Freddy Villanueva and why. So tell me about Freddy and why this play. Well, like most of the issues that uh, I end up addressing, it wasn't the initial incident of Freddy's death that attracted my attention back in 2008. It was more in 2009, 2010, when the coroner's inquest was going on in Montreal that I realized the scope of the issues that Freddie's death reflected. The amount of media attention was quite uh, incredible. And the polarization around the issue, when you read sort of blogs and comments after media articles, certainly there was a strong contingent of people who supported the police officer, the police officer's need to use his weapon in an incident where he felt threatened by a group of young people from different ethnic backgrounds, and other people who felt that this was clearly a case of racial profiling. So whenever a society is divided over an issue, I become interested. Alain Arsenault is Jeffrey Sagar Metellus's lawyer. When he heard Annabelle Soutar was working on Freddy, Arsenault contacted the playwright to share why he thinks it's difficult to create police reform. Well, for me, the role of the police in our society is a role that society has never really wanted to define. So we let the police define it themselves. And the police see themselves like a group of repressive paramilitaries. That's the bottom line. 
and we lawyers are obliged to define the role of the police through the courts. And when I wrote to you, that was one of the questions that I wanted to address. Why does society refuse to define the role of the police? It's been 30 years or so that I take on cases involving police files. I've spoken in front of parliamentary commissions. I've spoken to politicians. I've spoken to authorities. I've done everything. But people are afraid. They're afraid of the police. The police create so much fear that they are able to stop all reforms. And the public inquiry into Freddy Villanueva's death showed that. It was a huge illustration of that. Under Quebec law, when an arm is discharged or someone is hurt during a police intervention, the incident needs to be investigated by an independent police force. In this case, the SQ, the Sûreté du Québec. But the independent investigation came under scrutiny during the 18th-month public inquiry into the police shooting. When McCorner's report came out in 2013, it said mistakes were made all around, but it ruled out foul play by police. Still, the report left many unanswered questions about Villanueva's death, especially around the police investigation. Ricardo Lamour is a Montreal activist, hip-hop artist, and member of the Villanueva Family Support Committee. Lamour played the role of Judge André Perrault in the play Freddy. I spoke to Lamour after one of the theater shows. What, what is right now is that I think that the police protects the elite. And what should be is that the police protects our human rights, our basic human rights, the protection of our physical integrity. I'm even going as far as questioning the fact that why are they armed? Why are there so much police in the areas in town where you see a lot of cultural communities. L'Esquad Eclipse, a police crime prevention unit, was established in June 2008 to monitor street gangs in Montreal. In one year, the number of names in the street gang database went from 500 to 8,850. The Special Brigade is active in Montreal North and is seen as a repressive force in the community. An anonymous police officer and Will Prosper, a former police officer turned activist, talked to Annabelle Soutar about Montreal North. You arrive in those neighborhoods that have become so mixed. It's no longer Québécois, you know? All this time and energy spent on identifying street gang members. But what's being done to fight the socioeconomic problems in Montreal North? 40% of the population in Montreal North lives in poverty, Annabelle. 40%. 40%. Parker Ma is a multimedia artist and activist in Montreal. What do you think that story of Freddie Villanueva tells us about, about race relations in Montreal, or what does it tell us about Montreal? It tells us that there were and there still are conditions of extreme power imbalance in so-called you know, tolerant modern urban centers. And it's not only happening in Montreal, it's happening in places like major cities of the United States, it's happening in Europe, it's happening in all sorts of spots in which uh, minority immigrant cultures are discriminated against, are, are profiled, have less access to education and so social services, and are treated more and more harshly by a, a police force that seem to be less and less sensitive to understanding their experience. 
C'est une actrice qui va me jouer, là. Mm -hmm. Faut juste que tu me jures que les gens vont pas me reconnaître dans son... An actress is going to play me? Okay. You just have to swear that people won't be able to recognize me when she's acting. Because I'm a very honest person, but I don't want to get into trouble because of all this. And I want to defend my trade because I like my job. It's a good job. And I wasn't there at Park Henri Bourassa that night, but I know them, the two police officers that this happened to. I saw them after the whole thing and it wasn't pretty. The bad luck that came down on the Villanueva family there, You might not believe me, but it also came down on the police officers involved. I can't speak much about him because I don't know him. But the girl, Stephanie, there's a whole side that we're forgetting. We're people too. Every intervention is different. Some go well and some go badly. But when it ends badly, it doesn't just end badly for the victim and the victim's family, but it ends badly for the police officer, their family. And the judgment, you know? We're very judged by our peers, by the population. Everyone looks at us and judges us all the time. So what I want to tell you is that in this case, please, you shouldn't judge too quickly. Florence Blain saw Freddie in March 2016, the day after opening night. I asked her what she thought about the play. I'm talking about both sides. That's what really stood out to me, that we're placed in the boxes, even on the police side. Even though I think Freddie was a victim in this story, but we put people in boxes right away. There's a quick judgment. We don't ask questions about the human aspect. What really motivated the actions? Because that would open up a whole other side. I think the most important part that we're not focusing on are the human details that made Freddie nervous. That's what we see in this play, the whole range of nuance that wasn't seen during the court process that I think we see in this piece of theater. According to court transcripts, the police had been scoping the neighborhood and had their book of suspects in hand when they arrived. Jean-Louis Lapointe recognized some of the youth. Danny Villanueva was asked to show his ID, but he refused. Lapointe moved to arrest him and things escalated. As the police officers moved in on Danny, the youth moved in behind. Freddy saw his brother pinned to the ground. In this scene, individual number one is Danny Villanueva. Individual number three is Freddy Villanueva. I made contact. He overreacts. I intend to handcuff him. I used a pre-handcuff technique. From behind me, I hear other men behind me yelling. I feel surrounded. I have a feeling they're armed. I order them to stand back. I see my partner getting pushed by individual one. I bring individual one to the ground. I have a difficult time keeping him immobilized. There are now other men. They're already very close. I order them to stand back a second time. I get kicked in the knees by individual one. I hear my partner say that he also hit her. I give orders a third time. Stand back! I see individual three lean towards me. I'm afraid. I feel his hand on my belt. I am very afraid. I can't use my intermediate weapons. The individual grabs me near my throat. I am terrified. I can't wait anymore. I don't see any other options. I... So many questions remain. Was the dice game just a pretext to question the youth? Why were the police officers not separated right after the shooting? Why weren't they directly questioned during the investigation? Why did the investigation only rely on the police officers' written reports? You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. 
because of generous support from listeners like you. This show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. What makes documentary theater so powerful is the verbatim text, the voices of real people. Why did I include the kind of behind-the-scenes story of how the play came together? Well, it's not just behind the scenes. It's at the root of the play. The root of, at the root of the play is this question of who's responsible for what happened, who has the right to tell the story, why are we so afraid of telling the story and of controlling the content of the story. And I've almost always included the story of the playwright's intentions behind telling the story to help my audience make a more personal connection to the story. Uh, in this case, I'm not incarnated on the stage, but you, my presence is evoked through my letters and emails to people trying to get them to accept to speak with me. And the fact that most of them refuse is very relevant to the subject matter because play is all about a breakdown in communication, about our fears of speaking about the conflict that is existing in our society and how um, sometimes into that vacuum only violence can grow. And I'm deeply, deeply concerned about that potential outcome. I just shot my brother. You just shot my brother! Shut up. Dear Danny, I have asked your mother to pass you this letter in the hopes that you will agree to communicate with me. Can I call you? Please. Freddie's brother Danny never agreed to communicate with Annabelle Sutar, whose voices are actually heard in the play, became contentious. Liliane Villanueva, Freddie and Danny's mother, had collaborated with Annabelle early in the documentary process, but she withdrew her support when she found out the playwright also wanted to speak to the police. Well, I should tell you a little bit about why there was a point of rupture between Lillian and me. Lillian was, had seen a play of mine called Sexy Vétan that she admired, and she felt that I was a legitimate person to tell the story of her son's death. And her assumption was that a documentary playwright would write a play that would seek justice for the family, a justice that they felt they did not find through the justice system. And that that would be the intention of the play and the content of the play would be all evidence that pointed to it being an unreasonable use of force that day uh, by the police officer on August 9, 2008, and that her son never should have been killed. The Villanueva family was born in Honduras. Lilian Madrid, her husband, her five children, Patricia, Wendy, Danny, Lilian, Freddy, were all born there. They worked in a farmer's co-op, but had problems because of that. The landowners wanted to reappropriate their land, and the way to make them live as soon as possible was to threaten them. They killed the president and the vice president of the co-op. 
They took her husband one day, they chopped off two of his fingers, they broke his clavicle, and they threw him in a ravine and they left him for dead. I have a reputation for trying to take an even-handed approach to the issues that I tackle. I'm very concerned about polarization, so it is absolutely never my intention to take one side of a story uh, and to use theater as a tool, a propaganda tool, to change people's minds or to convince people about uh, one thing or the other. I really always try when I do my research to stay open to the different points of view and clearly here we had two very different points of view and it was important to me to get the police point of view. They had to leave their country. She was the one who made the decision for her family. She had to leave five children with her mother in Honduras. She left with her husband. They walked, they took the bus until they arrived on the Mexican border, then crossed into the U.S. They swam in the river, and then they asked for refuge in Canada. When they arrived in Canada, they went to Montreal North. She worked three jobs, from six in the morning until midnight every night. She worked in the fields, she cleaned, she worked in a pillow factory. When she arrived, the hardest was the language and the cold, and the fact that she left her five children and she didn't know if they were in danger. Two years later, she was able to bring her children to Canada. When she found out that I was trying to do that, she suffered huge disappointment in me and felt actually that she had been betrayed by me, that I had not been open enough about my intentions and if she had known that I would speak to the police and try and document their point of view, that she would have never spoken to me in interview. Later, she found out that very complicated things happened, very difficult things involving her children. She didn't tell anybody except for Immigration Canada. The people who were after her husband took her children. They even raped some of her children. If she had to make the decision all over again whether to stay there or to come to Canada, she would stay there. She would prefer that they kill her, her husband, and kids in Honduras instead of coming here where, little by little, well, they are killing her in the same way. Ricardo Lamour, speaking as a member of the Villanueva Family Support Committee. The author was, was harassing some of the people that were victims of this situation, August 9, 2008, police intervention. And she's like, why, why aren't they talking? Why aren't they talking? Well, because to talk, they feel like it's detrimental to their security. Annabel Sutar had to go through the support committee to access Lilian Villanueva. The committee also vetted some of the content of the play. Take me to that moment at the end of the play. You want to just summarize what happens? You might write a good story, but you'll never tell the truth. Well, we present an epilogue at the end of the play that gives the, the audience kind of a wrap-up of the conclusions and recommendations of the coroner's inquest. And the, the sort of tragedy is, is that after two years of very thorough public examination, the conclusion of the coroner pretty much reflected the police investigation, which was that the police officer acted with reasonable force in self-defense when he fired his bullets, and therefore he is not, shouldn't be held 
criminally responsible. Although the coroner did not have the mandate to find anyone criminally responsible, but he reiterated that, but also said that Freddie did not deserve to die. And in response to that conclusion, or before the play ends, that could be you know, felt by the audience as the natural conclusion of the play. Before it ends, Ricardo comes forward and presents a letter that he wrote to me while I was creating the play. La pièce que vous n'écrirez jamais. Chère Madame Soutar. There is a play that you will never write, dear Miss Soutar. Although your work bears Freddy's name, he and those close to him are glaringly absent from it. You receive economic support to write a story that you are trying to squeeze from those who have lived through it, from those who will not gain a cent for their pain. The game is set. Despite this criticism, the support committee remained involved in the production process of the play. In a phone interview, I asked Ricardo Lamour to talk about this decision. So, when we're talking power dynamics, we're talking about conflictual dynamics between the author and the family of, of Freddie. And the support committee in, in the middle of that, siding with the Villanueva family and coming to, a, to an understanding that this play was going to happen with or without the collaboration because Annabelle already had interviews done with, the, done with, with Lillian and a bunch of us. So we're like, if she's willing to show us what she's done so far, talking about Annabelle, mm-hmm. she's, open, she's opening her game. We'll tell her straight what we like, what makes sense, what is just, what can possibly cause prejudice. And that's the type of work that we've done when we reestablish contact. So would it be fair to say that you were taken aback a little bit from the fact that it was representing a story where the voice of the, of the people who were immediately affected was actually not included in the play? Is that what you're saying? Parker Ma. Yes, that's correct. The voice of the people who were immediately affected were not included directly. They were included indirectly through court transcripts and through newspaper articles and so on. The primary social issue, which the play addresses, which is like police brutality and sort of police oversight, the role of police in Quebec society, still being very, very much in the news and very much uh, a social issue of, of pressing concern. I think in this context specifically, it would have been nice to, to see more community engagement and to see more input on the part of the, the concerned individuals. I'm pleasantly surprised that people have publicly wanted to extend the critique that Ricardo expresses in the play, which is that even though they found the play compelling and they think it's a good piece of theater, they question its legitimacy after what Ricardo has said. There have been certain people uh, from, I think, Haitian background who have really related to what Ricardo said about the author's appropriation of Freddie's story, calling the play Freddie, being able to speak from the position of power that I occupy as a white person with financial resources to put on this kind of theater. They really do want to say after the play, we feel tremendously for the people who can't speak. And we wish that we lived in a society where they did have the means to speak.
And my response to that is usually, well, maybe this is a stepping stone. Maybe the first thing that needed to happen is the so-called establishment had to recognize that problem and start to open the door. I think that's what the play does. That's certainly the spirit behind it. I think putting Ricardo's letter in the play was um, my way of recognizing that. Maybe it didn't go far enough, but it's a first step. And that's it for the special edition of Making Contact. This documentary was reported by Elvira Truglia in Montreal. If something in today's show resonated with you, or if you have a story to share with us, like us on Facebook or mention us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Monica Lopez, Quan Booth, RJ Lozada, and Marie Cha. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Le crime organisé se fout de ton pour mon vieux. Ah, 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 ah. Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir?